Hi, I'm Dr. Adrienne McKeon, AKA the Story Whisperer. I'm here to help creators of all stripes to discover, shape, and share the narrative gems buried within them. This season, 2020 Hindsight, is all about recognizing both the challenges we overcame and the unexpected gifts we received from the unprecedented events of the year 2020. Life handed us a jar of expired olives, and we each made our own unique version of a quarantini. And if these inspirational stories should happen to inspire you to share yours, well, that's allowed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the That's Allowed podcast. I'm your hostess, Dr. Adrienne McKeon, and today we have Colleen Mitchell. Please introduce yourself, Colleen. Hi. Uh, well, as you just said, my name is Colleen Mitchell. I am a life coach, a podcaster, an author, a speaker, and I'm also a full-time analyst slash engineer in the power industry. So I do quite a lot, and I have fun while I do it all. Absolutely. So what is your podcast about? My podcast is about type 1 diabetes. It's called This is Type 1, Real Life with Type 1 Diabetes, because I've had type 1 diabetes for over 25 years, since I was two years old. So it's basically part of my identity. And we started a podcast to help uh, improve diabetes awareness and education for the people who don't necessarily know what the difference is between type 1 and type 2. And for those who don't, please explain. So for those who don't know, type 1 is an autoimmune condition where the pancreas does not produce any insulin at all. And type 2 is a metabolic condition where the pancreas does produce some insulin, but the body doesn't absorb it like it's supposed to. So sometimes type 2 diabetics will be on supplemental insulin. But if you are dependent upon insulin to actually survive, like if you stop taking it and you will die, you are a type 1. Got it. Type 1 is also incurable and type 2 is generally reversible. Yeah, big difference. Big, big difference. Absolutely. So as you know, season four is all about hindsight 2020. So I wanted to ask you, what was the greatest gift that the year 2020 gave you? The greatest gift that I got from 2020 was basically stepping out of my fear of being a public speaker and like into that whole world after a lifetime of absolutely hating it. So if you knew me in college, then you would have been like, you would have seen how how awful it, I was at it, how much I hated it. I like telling the story about the last presentation that we ever gave during my uh, like my senior capstone project. So our professor told us that we were not allowed to have note cards because in the real world, people don't use note cards for their speeches, which is a lie. And so I spent the, I think, several hours the night before this presentation, memorizing my portion of the speech. And the next day I got up in front of everybody and when I had to speak, I froze. Because memorizing it didn't help if I can't get past the fear of actually saying the words. Right. And so after that, I was just like, I I hate this. I don't want to do this. I can't, I'm not a public speaker. This is terrible. This is awful. This is disgusting. I don't like public speaking. And so after that, I would avoid every single instance where I was speaking to more than just a few people in in the same room. And if I had to give a presentation, I would memorize it as much as I could. And I would basically stilt through it. So I would just get through it as fast as possible, just get it over with. 
and I just grew to hate it so much. I would look at TED Talk speakers and like professional speakers and keynote speakers and be like, they look really comfortable doing that. I want to be able to do that. And so there was this moment when I was driving home from work in July of 2019. It's a 12-minute drive, so not very long. And I had just gotten so fed up that I decided on that drive home that I was going to offer to present at our next big company conference. And that conference happened in February of 2020. So the next day, I told the conference organizer, told my boss, and I had to figure out how to, how to write a speech and actually give a speech. And so I joined Toastmasters. Nice. And so Toastmasters, if you're not familiar with it, is this organization that is basically designed for people to improve their communication and their leadership skills. It's a safe space where people can come together to learn how to speak, how to be comfortable with speaking to get feedback on their speeches so that they can improve and learn what to look out for. And so I started giving speeches. Um, I gave my icebreaker speech, which is a four to six minute just introduction to yourself just to kind of get you comfortable with speaking. And then I actually gave a practice run of this conference presentation to the group and I got really good feedback on it. And so over the next couple months, I spent like 50 plus hours writing the speech, practicing the speech, rewriting the speech, memorizing it, rehearsing it. So by the time I actually gave this speech in February of 2020, people didn't realize that I, I was not a natural speaker. I spent all of this prep time not even considering what would happen after I was actually like saying the last words and walking off the stage. No thought whatsoever given to that. And so at the end of this, the speech that I gave was like applause. And then our vice president of safety, it was our safety conference. He walked up and he said, I didn't know we had another keynote speaker here tonight. Wow. And I was like, oh, great. You guys think I'm a, <laughs> like a actually legit thing now. And the organizers for that conference called the organizers of the next conference, which was happening three weeks later. And they said, you have to have Colleen speak at this conference. And so I gave the presentation again three weeks later to the second conference. And then when we got home from, from the second conference, everything shut down. So I haven't given an in-person speech since then, but I have, as of uh, last month, given five internal company conference speeches or presentations, which is honestly ridiculous if you had known me when I was in college. That's so wonderful. I love that story. I'm like, my face is hurting. I'm like smiling so much over here. Um, I believe it or not, I actually have a similar story because even though I've been, you know, an actress since I was itty bitty, I was terrified of public speaking. And I want to just make a distinction here because a lot of people don't understand that there's a difference between acting and public speaking. When you are public speaking, you are speaking as yourself. And so it takes away this layer of protection that acting gives you. When you are acting, you are acting as somebody else. They can judge the, the words that you're saying that somebody else wrote. They can judge, you know, you're acting, but they're not judging you as a person in the same way. When you are public speaking, especially if you're talking about a personal story or something that really matters to you that you're very passionate about, it can be this incredibly vulnerable and raw experience for people. 
And if it goes badly, as you experienced, it can feel like a personal rejection or a personal judgment. And so I just want to validate everyone out there who's saying, you know, yeah, I'm scared of public speaking too. It can be a very scary thing. But that said, the more you do it, the more you realize, oh, those people want you to succeed. Like they're not out there waiting for you to like fail so they can stick a fork in you. Like they want to get something good from this. And so they're on your side as audience members. They want you to do well. Yeah. And if, if there are people out there who want to stick a fork in you, then those aren't the people for you and you can just ignore their opinions. Absolutely. Because opinions are just opinions. I actually just wrote a thing today called How to Be a Muse and it talks about, you know, you don't, you're not as good a judge of potential or <laughs> outcome as you think you are, right? Like your opinion's just an opinion and you do not get to tell people that their baby is ugly, okay? That's just not, <laughs> not your place nor is it your job. And it's especially not your job to do to yourself. Yeah. And going back to what you were saying about getting better with practice, mm -hmm. your skill as a public speaker will definitely improve the more that you give speeches, but your internal emotional state will take longer to catch up. So, so that, true. that first speech I gave, um, I think right before I was standing on the sidelines, just like leaning against the wall, kind of pushing up on my feet. I had my shoes off. I was doing like really kind of uh, trying to do power poses, but not letting anybody know I was doing power poses. <laughs> and like my hands are clammy. And before that, I was in the bathroom, like doing power poses. That stuff works, yo. Works. Not, not kidding. But and so deep breathing. I was doing all of the things that I possibly could to keep myself as calm as possible before actually walking out on stage. And then right after the the MC was like, and our next speaker is, and I was like, okay, here it is. And then I actually start walking and start talking as I'm walking. And after that point, it was just automatic. So yeah. it was all of that hype up until the point where I start walking on and start talking that it's, that that's the, the scary part where you're just feeling all of that anxiety and that nervousness. And it does help to reframe it as excitement. And I'll, I'll do that now yeah. when I go into things. It's just, it's easier to feel excited about something because these people actually want to hear from me. And I know that now based on the response from the first one. Yeah. And the fact that you have that response says you care about this. This matters to you. And so that's great. You can celebrate that you're that excited about something, that you have this really strong physiological response to something because it matters to you and you're doing it. So go you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, another thing is that when you do stuff like this, especially the first time you get an adrenaline rush oh, yeah. and type one diabetes, when you have an adrenaline rush, your blood sugar goes up. And so I'm on a, an insulin pump and a continuous glucose monitor. If you're watching the video version, it's on my arm right here. Mm -hmm. It's just a little patch. And when I was speaking, I could feel my pump vibrating to tell me that my blood sugar was going high. And every five minutes, it would vibrate and beep right underneath the lapel microphone. It would vibrate and beep and I'm like, oh, crap, I hope nobody's actually hearing this. And nobody did because I asked some people afterwards and they didn't even notice. But that was a really good learning experience because the next time I gave the speech, I was able to give some insulin up front so that I wouldn't go as high. Mm, and then smart. I also used the graph of my insulin or my blood sugar spike in the next presentation to show what stress does to your health because yeah. that was stress in action. Oh yeah. And I was able to tie that into the next speech because it really tied into the whole topic and 
just being able to use my diabetes as kind of a teaching mechanism for things that are not specifically related to diabetes was really awesome. Yeah. So I went to this um, administrative professionals conference back when I was an admin. And what I found was that people kept assuming that I was one of the presenters and asking when my presentation was going to be because I just a big mouth. Right. And so finally, I was like, all right, fine, I'll do a presentation. And so I signed up to be one of the presenters. Well, even though like I knew exactly what I was getting myself into somehow when it actually came down to doing this, it was like I'm looking at this giant room that they put me in. I mean, it was a big room. like much bigger than I expected. And I'm looking at all this and just going, oh God, how do you fake an embolism? Like that's, <laughs> that was literally my thought process. It's like, I have to get out of this somehow. Like I cannot do this. And thank God my husband was there and he talked me through the whole thing and like held my hand and was like, you got this, babe, you're going to be great. And of course the night before my computer crashed, And so thank God he was there again for like, not just moral support, but like tech support to get me through that. And then, you know, the day of uh, everything that went wrong could go wrong, you know, that could go wrong, went wrong. And so my first presentation was kind of bumpy. And it was right after the big keynote speaker that everybody was like, oh my God, that's like the best speech I've ever heard in my life. Like, (laughs) so I'm like, great. Uh, But the second one went really well. And then the third one went even better than that. And so I think it's just one of those things that, you know, the more you do it, it's not just kind of getting, getting over the fear or getting used to it. It's that, like you said, you see that there are, there will always be parts of it that go better than others. But the bottom line is that people walk away with good stuff. And if you're willing to, you know, take that adrenaline rush and take that, you know, stress spike so that they can get the good stuff that you have for them, then it really feels like a gift. And then then it becomes fun. Yeah, those high blood sugars are totally worth it because now I have that experience of giving these speeches. And now I also have the experience of my coworkers asking me to present at other conferences and being open to when I want to present because they know I'm going to come up with something good. That's awesome. So what do you think is your main message to people who are listening today who might also be nervous about public speaking? Well, I was thinking about this before that I think we need to destigmatize public speaking as something to be afraid of. Mm -hmm. Because there's that old Jerry Seinfeld joke or whatever that more people are afraid of giving a speech at a funeral than being in the coffin. So we're more afraid of, of like talking to people who yeah. are not us or not our family than we are of being dead, which is kind of kind of ridiculous. Fascinating, and, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we need to destigmatize the fact that when we when we share our ideas, it's a good idea to share our ideas. Some yeah. people are gonna shut down those ideas, but those people don't matter. And when we listen to the people whose opinions are that we are stupid or dumb and we shouldn't be talking then we're closing ourselves down from creativity, from wisdom. And when we do that, we're not shining as brightly in the world. Yeah. So if you have something to say, don't be afraid to say it because of what other people might think. Yeah. I think that's, that's the important message here. Yeah, everyone has a message that is important. Everyone has knowledge that is important to pass on. Everyone has a story that's worth telling. 
And if you live in that fear and that shame of like, oh, they're going to judge me. It's going to be, you know, it's going to feel yucky. Like those people need to hear that story so that they we can judge ourselves yeah. so much worse than other people will. We are so our own much. worst critics. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, on that third speech that I gave, this woman came up to me afterwards and she was like, you just inspired me to quit my job. And, and change my life. And I've stayed in touch with that woman, you know, all these years afterwards. And she's doing great. She's out there thriving. And she's still, you know, will write to me randomly and be like, thank you so much like, for that speech. It's like I gave one speech, you know, years ago, and it's still with her. So you just never know who's that person that you're really going to like affect with something that you have to say. Yeah, you don't know who's listening. You don't know who's watching. I mean, if you if you go on Facebook and you do a Facebook Live, it might be scary at first and maybe nobody shows up, but maybe somebody watches that in a year and you save their life. Yeah. And you won't ever know because they probably won't tell you. But the fact isn't, or the point isn't to be getting this validation from other people in the form of clicks and, and likes and comments. It's just putting yourself out there and knowing that your message is meant for maybe one person and believing that that message is reaching the right person at the right time is enough. Yeah. And sometimes that message is just for you. And that's okay, too. Yeah. It's okay to just put stuff out there just because you feel like it. It doesn't have to save somebody's life to be worthwhile. Yeah. I mean, you could just inspire someone to make a better choice today. That, yeah. That could mean the world to them, and you don't know. Exactly. So what do you think is the story the world isn't getting? Hmm. That's a tough question. It's my favorite question. Man, I didn't even have time to prepare for this one. Well, obviously, you think people need to know more about type 1 diabetes or you wouldn't have oh my gosh. a podcast about it, right? I could talk forever on type 1 diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just say, what do you think is, what do you think people aren't getting about it? And why, why does that matter to people with it? Okay, so what people aren't getting is that our medical industry has failed us when it comes to nutrition. Absolutely. I went to diabetes camp. I've, well, I've been going to diabetes camp ever since I was six years old, and I've now been a counselor longer than I was ever a camper, which is awesome. And we didn't have pet camp this past year because of COVID, but when we do have camp, we have dietitians. And I think we might have some nutritionists, but we have dietitians, and they are required to teach that all kids with diabetes must have carbohydrates as part of their food plan. So you, as a diabetic, you are not allowed to ever give up carbs. And I am really salty about this. Yeah. Really, really salty about this because I tried for years and years to lose weight. I got up to a, my highest weight of 225 pounds and I'm five foot eight. So it didn't look great. I was fat, to be honest. And I sure reached didn't that feel point great either. Just oh no, carrying around no. that much weight. Yeah, it was it was awful. I hated it. And I'll pick up a, like a bag uh, of kitty litter now and realize that I had more than that bag of kitty litter on my body before, wow. and that's just mind blowing. But I reached this point in 2016 at that highest weight where I was just I was done because I was having really wild blood sugar swings, and I had done a lot of research into the ketogenic diet and like low carb, mm -hmm. and so. I made a decision overnight again, like another fast decision, to just completely switch to low carb. And the very next day, I had the best blood sugars of my life. So I went from 
going down for, to like 40 up to 400 and normal is like 183 to 100. So those are really wild swings. So I went from that to just really, really stable. And I, I love looking at the graphs from before and after on my CGM because it's wild how much difference just my food did. And I st started losing weight. It started melting off. So I started low carb for the blood sugar control and I stayed for the weight loss. And since then I've lost 65-ish pounds. So right around there, I still have some more to go. But all of that happened because I made the decision not to listen to what I had been taught when I was growing up about diabetes. And even now, the meal plans or the lunches at, at our diabetes camp is 70 grams of carbs in mm -hmm. one lunch. I don't eat, I don't hit 70 grams of carbs in a day anymore. Like my cap is 50, if that. And I think the, the message that the diabetes community in particular needs to hear is that you do not have to have carbs. They are not a requirement. You don't need to eat donuts. You don't eat, need to eat pasta. You don't need to eat rice. None of that is actually good for you. You can make the decision to change your diet based on how you feel in your body. I always recommend that diabetics experiment with their food. They shouldn't actually just take the like the rec recommendations of their doctor without questioning some of it. Yeah. And especially if the, those doctors are telling them that they have to have carbs as part of their diet. And when I'm saying carbs, I'm talking about like the processed stuff, the boxed stuff. A lot of times people forget that vegetables are carbohydrates and right. we like vegetables. We want to have some of those. Yeah. I just stay away from the starchy ones like potatoes and carrots are starchy. So I stay away from the starchy ones. But when diabetics don't like experiment with their foods and they wonder why they're fat, they wonder why they're having taking so much insulin, they wonder why their blood sugars are super like super high and super low, look at your food. Yeah. Because I didn't look at my food until I reached 225 pounds and since then it's been amazing. I always I get frustrated when diabetics tell me that they can't imagine ever giving up carbs or just or that they're so like they love food and they want to have food and they want to have carbs in their diet and like they want to have donuts every day and in the long term just think of how that's going to affect your body when you're 20 years older like do you want that in your life and a lot of them don't ever think of their future selves at all i get and frustrated the, with this and you can <laughs> you also can have tell. a really delicious meal plan that is low carb like oh yeah taking out carbs doesn't mean taking out taste yeah. you know like my friend uh i have a friend who is on a strict ketogenic diet because she has um uh, epilepsy and she's been seizure free for the last five years because of the ketogenic diet and she you know loves to to post pictures of her meals and things and like so for uh i think it was thanksgiving she did her version of thanksgiving which was like a steak with like butter on it and then like cream cheese uh bacon date things and like it, i mean just like all this delicious stuff i was like oh my gosh i want to come over to your house right <laughs> like that sounds amazing <laughs> Yeah. And so I think there's this stigma of like low carb means like low taste. And I think that's absolutely wrong. That's absolutely yeah, I, wrong. I oversalt everything because going low carb has given me a greater appreciation for salt. And now oh, yeah. like Salt's if I don't delicious. have enough salt on something, I put salt in my salads. Mm -hmm. It just makes it taste better. It does. Salt makes everything taste better. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Very true. 
Yeah. And I think there's really something to that though. It's so important to experiment with your own nutrition and just see what, what works for you and what doesn't, what makes you feel better, what makes you feel worse. Um, considering though, however, that sometimes there's a transition period where if you start something new, you feel crappy at first because you're kind of detoxing from the stuff oh, that yeah. you were doing. Yeah, I did. And I actually did an elimination diet uh, middle of last year. And that helped me figure out that I'm sensitive to uh, processed meat. So I don't, I, I used to be the bacon lady. I don't have bacon at all anymore. Aww. And it's not a problem. Like I'm, yeah. I don't, I don't miss mm -hmm. the, the, the taste of like taking that bite of bacon after I had eliminated it for a while and being like, this does not taste right. Yeah. So I don't want to like force my body into, into like wanting that again or thinking that tastes good again when now I know that it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah, I went through a long period where um, just sh I just eliminated uh, excess sugar, basically like any kind of refined sugar I just took out. And it's so I'm so sensitive now to sweetness. Like anything that has refined sugar in it, I'm like, whoa, that's really sweet. <laughs> if I sniff a donut, my blood sugar goes up. Yeah, it's just like, whoa. Yeah, but that's the beauty. Like now a strawberry tastes so sweet to me, you know, because I'm so attuned to it. <laughs> and that's how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Like the processed sugar industry has given us this ex like exploding dopamine from how concentrated it is. Yeah. And the reality is we're supposed to be able to enjoy that strawberry as if it was a candy bar because that's, right. it, that's how our brains were developed. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, this also just goes back to the way that food is, has become a business in our society, the way that our food is grown, the way that our food is processed, the way that our food is marketed. Uh, it takes it so far away from the natural, you know, nutritive properties that, that are in the food when you just grow it in good soil. It's just a, the bottom line of like, if you have good soil, you're going to have good nutrition. But we get so separated from where our food comes from and how it's produced and what goes into it and what comes out of it before it comes to our table. I think there's so many people out there who wouldn't even know what, you know, if, when, you, when you walk through a garden, you would have no idea how this correlates to the thing on your plate. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. We did an episode on um, how to read nutrition labels. I don't know mm. if it's out yet, but it should be coming out soon if it's not already. And if you can't pronounce the things, like the, the, the ingredients list, it's yeah. probably not good for you. Probably not. <laughs> if it has more than five ingredients, you might want to double check if you actually want to eat it. If sugar is one of the top three ingredients, put it back on the shelf. Yeah. It's ridiculous how much people don't know about what's in their food. Mm -hmm. And it's also interesting if you if you actually do experiments with, with different types of, of packaged food on yourself, even if they come from a low-carb manufacturer. So I did this with Catalina Crunch. They're a brand that makes like uh, low-carb Oreos, and they also make low-carb, low-carb in quotation marks, cereal. Mm -hmm. And I tried both. And the, the low-carb Oreos didn't affect me basically at all. But the low-carb cereal made my blood sugar skyrocket within a couple of minutes. Wow. And the ingredients were, like, the ingredients lists were completely different. I have no idea what was actually different about them. But they were from the same manufacturer. So you can't, 
like go into a food experience expecting that you're going to get the same results from the same company with the same type of foods if you don't pay attention to the ingredients because you might be surprised like I was and have really high blood sugars for several hours. Yeah. Also, um, I'm really sensitive to MSG. I know not everybody is and it's gotten a bad rap and all of that. And that's very true, but it also comes under a lot of different names. And so for people who are sensitive to it, it can be really, really difficult to figure out what it's in. Um, and then we get the, you know, that response and we're like, what the hell, you know, like looking back through the ingredients, like what was it? And it's like under some new name now. And I had this experience that, you know, I love Trader Joe's. And I buy all kinds of stuff from Trader Joe's. And I had a really bad reaction one time to something that I bought from Trader Joe's that said right on the label, no MSG. And so I was like, I know it was this, like I didn't eat anything else. Like it had to be that. And so I go and I look through the ingredients and sure enough, there's something that they were calling autolyzed yeast extract. And I was like, okay, guys, that's MSG. Anyone who has an, you know, a, a, a reaction to MSG, it, it reacts the same way as MSG. So I went to a Trader Joe's just like to say, Hey guys, just so you know, like this actually does have MSG in it. And they argued with me and we're like, no, it doesn't. And I was like, look, I don't want to be the jerk. You know, I'm just here to, to tell you this so that if you have another problem with like, I don't want you to get sued or something, right? If someone has an even worse reaction than I do and comes in and says, Hey, this has no MSG and it has MSG in it. I just want you guys to know. And they just didn't want to hear it. Like totally shut me down. I was like, okay, good luck with that. (laughs) That But yeah, you really can't, you really can't trust that, you know, just because it's a known label, it's somebody that you like, it's something that, you know, you think you can trust. You got to read those ingredients. And that brings up the other thing, which is sugar has like 50 something different names. Oh yeah, at least. At least 50 something different names. So if, if it doesn't say sugar on it, that does not mean that there is no sugar in there. Right. Yeah. Sneaky, sneaky, sneaky stuff. I, oh. yesterday it was so funny. So my husband uh, found this packet of top ramen in the cupboard. Right. And he was like, oh my gosh, I haven't had this stuff in so long. Like, this is a great comfort food. Like I'm so excited. And then he was like looking at the ingredients list and he was like, I can't even read this. What, like, what does this say? And so I started reading, you know, the whole thing to him. And by the end, he was like, you know what? Never mind. Just throw it away. <laughs> like, I can't believe I ever put that in my body. <laughs> uh, and like, I, I, I went through so much Top Ramen in college. I, oh, I yeah. ate pasta roni like straight out of the box. And <laughs> now when I look back, it's like, what, what, what was I doing to myself? Because Absolutely. I didn't know. Because I was taught yeah. that like I can eat whatever I want as long as I give insulin for it. And that's another thing that the diabetes community should know is that that piece of advice is really dangerous because if you do that, you're going to feel terrible. Maybe you technically could eat whatever you wanted as long as you give give insulin for it, but that doesn't mean that you want to. Right. Just Just based on how you feel afterwards. Yeah. Doesn't mean you should. Yeah. I mean, you you can jump off a cliff, but. (laughs) Yeah. It's really not recommended. You might survive, but why would you, why would you risk it? (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. It depends on if you're wearing like a, what are those, the, the clip jumper suits? Exactly. <laughs> but even that's not guaranteed. So what else have you learned about uh, nutrition? That what works for one person is not going to work for another. Mm. So I was thinking about this earlier that even though I recommend everybody try low carb, that doesn't mean you have to stick with it. Because if you find that it doesn't work for you, then you can find something that does. 
Maybe you prefer vegan or vegetarian because of how your body reacts to meat. Mm -hmm. That's fine. As long as you do the experiments to figure that out. I mean, low carb itself as like a, as a thing changes definition based on who you talk to. Of course. So for me, low carb is below 50 50 grams. For ketogenic people, it's below 20 net grams. Mm -hmm. But it also might be less than 100 because it depends on how your body reacts to it and what's good for you. What what the recommendation is right now is for diabetics to have like over 300 grams of carbs a day. And that that is insane. That seems insane. It is insane. And you have to think about it also like this, where the more carbs that you're eating as a diabetic, the more insulin you have to take. Yeah. And insulin is one of the most expensive drugs in the world. It's really frustrating because it's, I think it's like $361 for a vial of 1,000 units. And a vial of 1,000 units will last you, actually, I think it's two to three vials a month for the average diabetic. And if you do the math, the insulin itself is the largest piece of how much diabetes costs if you don't have insurance. And so there's a lot of people out there who ration their insulin because they don't have enough because it's too expensive. Yeah. And part of that, like part of the, the problem with with insulin is if you're taking a lot, you have to look at your food. And if you're eating a lot of carbs, you're also going to be taking a lot of insulin. And that's mm-hmm. going to be driving up your healthcare costs. Yeah, we have a friend. I have a lot of opinions. <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's great. We have a friend who's turning 100 this year who has type 2 diabetes. And, you know, he used to come over a lot, you know, back when people came over. <laughs> back in the day, back in 2019. Uh he would come over a lot and, you know, we would always try to make meals that were low carb to, you know, just like be sensitive to his blood sugar. And he would always be like, do you have any dessert, only pumpkin pie? Or, you know, it's like, mm. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> Maybe you can have a small piece, but you know, it's hard. Like, I don't want to tell other people their business, but at the same time, it's like, I, I also, just feel for you. And I don't want you, you know, to come away from my house feeling crappy because of what I fed you, you know? But you also have to trust that people make their own decisions and yeah. sometimes they make bad decisions and then that's on them. That's on them. I mean, Indeed. Like I, I, I have made the choice in the past to have a donut and I knew exactly what it was going to do to my blood sugar and I did yeah. it anyway. And then I felt like, like crap afterwards, yeah. but I did that to myself and I can't blame anyone else. I can't even blame the person who bought the donuts. Right. <laughs> Because they didn't force me to eat it. Nope. Nope. We are forced to be free, as the existentialists like to say. Hmm. Yep. That's very philosophical. You you have free will, whether you like it or not. So every choice you make is free to make. <laughs> <laughs> Some people don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very uncomfortable thing when you really stop to think about it. Like, whoa. Every decision yikes <laughs> every decision is our own to make yeah uh, it's freeing but it's also like ooh, what a responsibility well, i mean if you think of it like that of course you're gonna be like oh god no. <laughs> like i just want someone to tell me what to do yeah <laughs> and i think a lot you. of us you know spend a lot of our lives feeling like that and just saying like tell me what to eat tell me what to do you know i don't want to have to be responsible for this i don't want to you know screw this up I think that's where yeah. a lot of this comes from. It's like, well, my doctor told me to do this, so I'm just going to do that. 
you know? That's exactly what I was going to say is when people are giving away their, their right to make good decisions for themselves and then blaming the people who are making those decisions because like that person doesn't know you as well as you do. That doctor does not live in your body. That's right. Only you can make the decisions for you for the best possible like choice. You are the yeah. like you're the you're the person who knows what the best decision is for you, even if you don't feel like it or think that. Yeah. Well, it's about time to transition here and I'm going to do this little exercise, but I'm going to do it uh, we're going to I'm going to take you into an ideal situation for people, all people with type 1 diabetes. Okay, so I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to wave my magic wand. Things are now perfect. You are now in an ideal situation. Everything is as it should be with the medical community, with nutrition, with everything. Tell me what it is like in this ideal situation. There's a cure. Nobody has type 1 diabetes. beautiful and what does that do then like all the all the people of the world are they aware of their nutrition now probably not because they have a (laughs) cure to to cure their type 1 diabetes and so they don't need to be wearing things like continuous glucose monitors to know what their blood sugars are but in the ideal world you wouldn't have type 1 diabetes you wouldn't have any disease but we don't live in an ideal world right and i do think that these um these conditions do make us more aware of nutrition and the importance of nutrition. Oh yeah. So yeah, definitely. I, I have never um, known so much about my own body than I have going through this journey of weight loss and low carb and elimination diets and just knowing what things do to my blood sugar. Wearing a CGM is the best thing ever because I have this constant influx of data to show me exactly what's happening at any given moment. And like before we got on today, I was I came back from a walk and my blood sugar went straight down. And so mm-hmm. I had th- like three or four rolls of Smarties just to bring myself out and lay on the couch, wait for it to come up. And yeah. I wouldn't have known what to do if not for having a CGM because I would have just felt like shaky right. and I wouldn't really know the trend unless I had that. And so... I think having diabetes has made me mature faster than I otherwise would have. It makes me far more aware of what I'm putting into my body. And it just, I think it, it makes me a better person, honestly. Like, I I don't think I would actually give up having the experience of having had type 1 as long as I have. If I get a cure tomorrow, that would be awesome. But I wouldn't give away the past 25 years of this experience for anything because of what it's taught me. Yeah. How would you, let's say, okay, so... Um, let's do this again. Have you close your eyes? <laughs> I wave my magic wand. You are now cured. And your life is exactly as you want your life to be. Your body is exactly as you want your body to be. And I want you to just take a moment and kind of look around your life in this perfect situation and tell me what it's like. What do you see? What do you hear? What do you smell here? Hmm. I don't think I've ever done an exercise like that before. Let's see. I was like, the stereotypical birds are tripping, the sun is shining. I love it. Those are great things. Worm on my face. (laughs) 
you've got the sun on your face. I want you to just feel that, feel that sun on your face. You hear those birds chirping. Maybe you feel the ground underneath your feet. Mm. Yeah. And I want you through the woods. Yeah. You're on a hike. My blood sugar dropping. There you go. So you're just hiking. You're free. You don't have to worry about your blood sugar. You don't have to worry about anything. You see a tree ahead of you and it has your favorite fruit growing on it. What is it? That's a tough question because I don't actually like fruit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You're in a garden. (laughs) You see your favorite vegetable. What is it? Red bell pepper. Mm, Nice. So you see this perfect red bell pepper. And I want you to just take a big old bite and taste what that tastes like. Knowing that you're not going to have to worry about your insulin. You're not going to have to worry about your blood sugar spiking. You can just enjoy this bell pepper and just keep walking. It's a nice bell pepper. It's very crunchy. Super (laughs) sweet. Excellent. Is there anything that else that you, uh, that is different in this space that you want to note? Of being cured in my ideal body. Mm-hmm. So you've got that freedom, that feeling of just like, all right, I can do whatever I want and not have to worry about that. So that's interesting because I don't really feel like I'm held back at all right now. That's awesome. Yeah, I don't use diabetes as a reason not to do things. It's <laughs> A lot of people do that. Oh, yeah. It kills me when people do that. And so I try not to let it stop me from doing anything that I really want to do. I just might have to take some extra precautions along the way. But that like that hiking example, it would it would be really nice to just be able to wake up in the morning and decide that I want to go drive to the hiking to the, to the trailhead and not have to worry about my blood sugar and how much how many smarties I have and how long I can go. Just nice to just get up and go. Yeah, that's something I think a lot of us take for granted, just that we can just get up, walk out, walk out of the house and not think much about, you know, do we have food with us or or not? Yeah. Not everyone has that luxury, folks. Yeah. And not everyone has the luxury of having a CGM or an insulin pump or these supplies that are typically a lot more expensive if you don't have insurance so I also am I'm aware that I am very grateful to have these things in my life that make my life easier absolutely if you could sort of like give a a gift to the world what would you give the world be willing to experiment be willing to question everything that you're told especially by people in authority. Be willing to just trust yourself to know what is best for you because nobody knows what's best for you except you. So you would give the gift of self-trust. Oh yeah. If more people trusted themselves, we would be in a very different world. That is so true. I love that. So that's a beautiful takeaway, everybody. Trust yourself, trust your body, listen to your body, 
you know yourself better than anyone does, even your doctor, even your family, you know you best. And if something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else you want to say to our lovely audience before I let you tell them where to find you? Well, it kind of goes off of the last thing you just said, where if it doesn't feel right to get it checked out, type 1 diabetes can be can mimic uh, can show up as the flu. Oh, wow. They share a lot of the same symptoms. So if you think something is wrong with your kid and the doctor says it's just the flu that them like waited out, ask for a blood test. It only takes one drop to test for diabetes, and that might be the most important drop you ever get tested. That's great advice. Thank you. All right, Colleen, where can the people find you? The people can find me at inspiredforward.com. That is my website where I have links to my podcast, my coaching practice. Uh, eventually, I'll have a link to my upcoming novel there. And you can also find all of my social media links on that website. That's so awesome. I didn't even know you were writing a novel. <laughs> I've been writing it since 2018, and it just kind of comes in and out of conversation, but it doesn't actually have a home yet on my website. Fantastic. I love it. So uh, I, I definitely want to hear more about that uh, when we get off here, but that's wonderful. And uh, everybody, we love you. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much for being here to witness that. After all, a story with no audience to receive it is like a plant with no soil to take root in. If you found this episode worthwhile, please pass it on. And if you've got a story the world just isn't quite getting, I'm here to help. Check out my website, thatsallowed.com, to get your free ideal scene meditation and start releasing your masterpiece today.